Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A 40-year-old man named Alan Russell was busted for marijuana possession by Mississippi cops in 2017. They found five bags of pot on him, totaling one and a half ounces of the devil's lettuce, about enough to make 90 joints, or, if you're Snoop Dogg, about 45 really big joints. And even though marijuana was legalized in several states by then, and marijuana never killed anybody... Russell was sentenced to life in prison. One reason that Russell's sentence was so harsh is because Mississippi has a strict three-strikes law. If you're convicted of three felonies in their state, you can go to prison for life, even if all you did was get caught with some weed. In 2004, Russell had been arrested for burglary after breaking into the same house on two occasions. No violence occurred during the burglaries. Then, in 2015... Russell pleaded guilty to possession of a weapon. Felons can't own guns in Mississippi. The pot was Russell's third strike, and Mississippi didn't care that there was no victim. He obviously appealed this decision, but just last year, the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of keeping him locked up forever. And Russell's case is no strange exception. According to the Prison Policy Initiative... There are currently about 353,000 people sitting in jails or prisons in the United States for drug possession. That's one in five inmates. And police are still making over one million arrests for drugs every year. Many of these offenders can't make bail, so they sit behind bars waiting for their sentencing in court, where they can receive fines, additional prison time, or, in states like Mississippi, a life sentence. And if they get out, they're haunted forever by a felony record, making it difficult to find legal employment, often compelling them to earn money through further crime, which will eventually send them right back to jail. Why are we doing this? Why are some drugs illegal in the first place? 
Who decided that carrying around a certain plant can send you to prison, but you're free to sit in a pub and kill your liver with alcohol? And does the war on drugs help anybody? Or does it just lead to the mass incarceration of minorities? This is the philosophy of crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Humans have gotten high for all of recorded history. We were getting drunk on mead 10,000 years ago. The ancient Sumerians loved their opium. The Chinese were smoking blunts in 3000 BC. Mesoamericans chewed coca leaves until they couldn't feel their faces anymore. If we ever found a plant that got us fucked up, we made note and told our friends. Until 1912, you could buy cough syrup infused with heroin over the counter. We gave it to colicky babies. We put cocaine in soft drinks, the coca in Coca-Cola. What do you think fueled the greatest generation? Fucking drugs, man. Then along came the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act of 1914, the first law that regulated drugs in the United States, limiting the distribution of opiates and cocaine. The regulations increased after soldiers returned from World War I addicted to the morphine that they'd been given for their wounds in the field. Then came the prohibition of alcohol in 1920. During prohibition, it was illegal to buy beer, but not weed. Of course, people didn't stop drinking. It just created an untaxable black market, and so prohibition was repealed in 1933. Here's a fun fact for you. The first beer sold in Cleveland after Prohibition was Renner Beer, my great-great-uncle's brew. It was ready to be sold because he never stopped production. The Marijuana Tax Act passed in 1937 and weed became illegal. Some scholars believe this happened not to save us from beatneck potheads, but to destroy the hemp industry, because hemp paper is cheaper to produce than pulp paper. And Randolph Hearst, the Robert Murdoch of the early 20th century, didn't want his timber business to go under. In 1970, President Nixon got a hair across his ass and pushed for more drugs to be categorized and criminalized. That year, Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. Nixon said that he was particularly upset that soldiers were coming back from Vietnam addicted to heroin. Though, who's more to blame for that than Nixon himself? His true motivations, as always, were likely more selfish. John Ehrlichman, who served as Nixon's White House counsel before going to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal, told Harper's Magazine in 1994 that Nixon's war on drugs was a way to silence his enemies. By getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, he said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Magic mushrooms and other psychedelics became illegal in 1971, when they were classified as dangerous by the United Nations, which was a real bummer because studies were showing how effective psychedelics could be in treating PTSD and alcohol abuse. Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was even thinking about making LSD the 13th step. And then we got Ronald Reagan and Nancy and their evangelical war on drugs, 
Just say no, they said. It's that easy. Reagan signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act in 1984, which gave judges a wonderful new tool called mandatory minimum sentences. They focused on new stiff penalties for crack cocaine users, the vast majority of whom were African-American, rather than the white powder that rich Wall Street white guys enjoyed. Five grams of crack would get you five years in federal prison, but to earn the same sentence for powder cocaine, you had to get caught with 500 grams. Because of these policies, by 2001, the number of black people in prison surpassed the number of men enslaved before the Civil War, according to the American Civil Liberties Union. That's why the war on drugs has come to be known as the new Jim Crow. The conservatives behind these laws, by the way, would argue that taking drugs like crack is not a victimless crime because addicts might become violent or they could neglect their children. But their solution is worse because it absolutely removes the addict from their family, from their jobs, and places them in confinement among other criminals, making it much more likely they'll fall into dangerous crime upon release. And for all this effort, the drugs never went away. We just created black markets and forced users to put themselves in danger to get their untaxable fix. If you wanted heroin or cocaine, you found a guy, and that guy usually wanted you to come to the scariest, most dangerous part of town, the sort of places police are afraid to visit, to get the goods. And since there was no regulation, you didn't ever know what you were getting. The coke could be mixed with baby powder, or worse, fentanyl. Prohibition of drugs is not economically smart, either. A 2008 study published by a Harvard economist show that not incarcerating drug users would save the government $41.5 billion a year, while legalizing and taxing the product could generate an additional $46.7 billion a year. All the war on drugs did was make criminals out of people whose souls were hurting. And it led to countless deaths due to bad drugs mixed in bathtubs. This world is full of teeth. At times, it can bring you to your knees. To many, these illicit drugs are the only medicine they have to dull that existential dread of a hard life. And for this, we put them in prison? Eventually, you have to ask yourself, what the fuck are we doing? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A philosopher who lived about 200 years ago warned us about systems of government that might try to interfere with our personal liberties. John Stuart Mill was born in 1806 and became one of the prominent minds of the utilitarianist movement. John's father was a philosopher as well and schooled the boy on the teachings of Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, with the explicit goal of turning John into a boy genius. He was taught Greek at age three. By the time he was eight years old, he was studying Latin and homeschooling his younger siblings. In his spare time, he read popular novels like Robinson Crusoe. At 12, the boy was reading Aristotle and could debate about political economy. The Mills family were the royal Tannenbaums of their day. When he was 20, John became depressed and contemplated suicide. He was concerned that he could find no joy in this world. It was the poetry of William Wordsworth that pulled him out of his slump. Something about the poetry showed him that beauty generates compassion and stimulates joy. It was this thought, this realization, that showed him the way back. John Stuart Mill's major contribution to philosophy came in 1859 with the publication of his essay, 
on liberty. In his essay, Mill explored the history of authority versus liberty. In early days, we needed a strong-willed leader to keep us in check. We were small tribes of nomadic people who often waged war on each other. But we had grown into larger societies where the average person had some intelligence and the capability to succeed in life without restrictions, and this was a very good thing. We don't need somebody else to tell us how to live our life now. We advanced to an era where we could and should enjoy freedom. Mill believed that a leader in a government should only restrict freedom if a person's actions might hurt somebody else. That the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others, he wrote. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. Over himself, over his body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Mill goes on to list three basic liberties any decent society should recognize. They are the freedom of thought and emotion, the freedom to pursue tastes, provided they do no harm to others, even if they are deemed immoral, and the freedom to unite. It's that second freedom that is important to remember in the debate about the legality of illicit substances. Mill would say that there's nothing wrong with someone getting high if they want to, as long as they don't hurt other people. It may be morally wrong to some, but Mill doesn't give a fuck about morals because morals change. Morals are not concrete laws of nature. They are a belief system in the minds of fallible humans. As Mill puts it, human nature is not a machine to be built after a model and set to do exactly the work prescribed for it, but a tree which requires to grow and develop itself on all sides according to the tendency of the inward forces which makes it a living thing. If a society goes so far as to criminalize a person for how they behave, for how they act based on what they think is best for them at the time, assuming they're not hurting anybody but themselves, that's not really a free society at all, and we should want no part of it. Because it's a slippery slope. If we allow laws that target certain beliefs, what happens when a new majority, one that does not share your personal moral and religious beliefs, takes over? They will do what you did, legislate thought and behavior based on what they think is right. The worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it, wrote Mill. It's odd to me that if the crime is that they're hurting themselves and we don't like that, why are we then hurting them more by locking them up? It doesn't make logical sense. If what we really want is to help addicts, then what we should be talking about is treatment rather than punishment. But unfortunately, one very successful treatment, perhaps the most helpful treatment of all, is also illegal almost everywhere. I'm talking about magic mushrooms. Last February, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to trip balls. I was having trouble with drinking. By any official test, I'm probably a functioning alcoholic. I can look back now and see how it got out of control during COVID lockdown. My local grocery store has a state liquor market inside, and every few days I'd drop in and pick up a handle of Red Label Smirnoff vodka. It was cheap, and I could mix it with soda water to keep the calorie count down and to hide the volume of liquor I was consuming every day. At first, I only drank after five. Then that became three o'clock, and I had to drink more than a pint to feel a buzz. In my defense, it felt like the world was ending, didn't it? 
I mean, for a while there at the beginning when we didn't know where the bottom was and hospitals were running out of room to store the dead bodies, it felt like we were at the beginning of a post-apocalyptic movie. People were out of work, kids were out of school, and we still had to eat. If we didn't get the little economic help that we did from the government when we did, I think we would have seen looting and rioting on a scale we can't imagine. I think it was damn close. That's a lot of stress, and, you know, there's this liquid, a magic potion that provides immediate relief. I mean, why wouldn't you drink? But then lockdown ended and people went back to work, and now I had this monkey on my back. I lost the ability to fall asleep at night sober. At some point, I learned about this program called MAPS, which stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. MAPS was founded in 1986 by Rick Doblin, a psychologist who personally witnessed the therapeutic benefits of ecstasy before it was labeled a Scheduled One substance, placing it in the same category as heroin. Before it became illegal in 1985, Dr. Doblin treated a young woman who suffered from PTSD after a sexual assault. He gave her ecstasy in a controlled therapeutic setting. The unique properties of the drug allowed his patients to become aware of the loops of negative thoughts that were contributing to her suicidal urges, to finally recognize her thoughts objectively and to separate herself from them. Not only did she not commit suicide, she went on to become a therapist herself and still alive today. Ecstasy was first developed by a Merck chemist in 1912, but nobody recognized how fun it could be until the U.S. Army commissioned a study on psychedelics in the 1950s at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. That study found its way to the chemist Alexander Shulgin, who liked it so much he started recommending it to psychotherapists in the 1970s. Shulgin called the drug window because it seemed to open up his mind like a window to allow him to perceive the world more clearly. Sometimes he called it his low-calorie martini. Other therapists called the drug Adam because some believed that it returned users to a state of primordial innocence. Since Reagan made the drug illegal, Rick Doblin and his team at MAPS have patiently lobbied Congress to chill the fuck out and bring back Molly and her psychedelic sisters. Finally, in 2004, they were given permission to conduct clinical trials to study the effects of MDMA-assisted therapy on PTSD. The timing makes sense. The first soldiers to see action in the war on terror were returning home, bringing with them the effects of untold trauma. People who have PTSD have brains that are different from those of us who don't have PTSD, Doblin explained in a 2019 TED Talk, which has been viewed over 22 million times. They have a hyperactive amygdala, where we process fear. They have reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, where we think logically and they have reduced activity in the hippocampus where we store long-term memory. But here's the magic of ecstasy. MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, increases activity in the frontal cortex, and allows a traumatic memory to move into long-term storage where it's no longer at the front of our every waking thought. It is practically designed to treat PTSD. Doblin's initial study included 107 subjects, One was a veteran on disability due to PTSD, whom he refers to as Tony. Like his other subjects, Tony participated in a therapeutic routine 
that included three sessions under the influence of MDMA, separated by four sessions of traditional therapy. While taking the drug, Tony would lie on a couch and listen to music while experiencing the effects of MDMA. Whenever he wanted, he could speak to two therapists stationed on either side of his bed. During one session, Tony had an epiphany. He realized that his PTSD was how his mind was trying to keep him connected to his friends who had died overseas. It was a way of honoring them. He was able to shift his perspective to see himself in the eyes of his dead friends to realize they would not want him to suffer. There was a better way to honor their memory, to live his life as fully as possible. He has remained free of symptoms of PTSD ever since. After this study, MAPS presented its findings to the FDA. They had cured 23% of patients suffering from PTSD using traditional therapy only. When they combined therapy with monitored use of MDMA, they were able to cure 56%. Ecstasy doubled their success rate. And when they checked in with their subjects a year later, another 10% reported that they also had no further symptoms. Two-thirds of their subjects had been healed. The FDA called the MDMA technique a breakthrough therapy. Because of MAP's success, the government was finally willing to reconsider psychedelics. They loosened restrictions on MDMA for study, and not just MDMA. They opened the door for psilocybin as well. Derived from magic mushrooms, psilocybin is a natural psychedelic, the favorite medicine of tripping hippies who want to see the face of God. Doblin predicts that there will soon be thousands of clinics across the United States where therapists can administer MDMA and psilocybin to treat psychological disorders or to use the substances to promote empathy during couples counseling. The psychedelic renaissance is here, he promised. Since his TED Talk, the cities of Denver, Oakland, and Ann Arbor have decriminalized psilocybin. I wondered if I too might find some relief through psychedelics. I didn't go through maps, since I'm not a veteran of war, but I did find somebody with experience in their program who offered to shepherd me at his apartment in D.C. He had chocolate bars infused with psilocybin that he got outside of Oakland, California, where it's legal to do so. The bars come in branded packaging like any other edible. Mine was called microchips, and the bar was divided into little squares. You could take a single square to microdose. You could take half a bar to have a decent experience. A full bar is considered a heroic dose and not for amateur psychonauts. I ate three quarters of the bar and then lay down on the man's couch. We listened to a meditative playlist created by MAPS employees that you can find on Spotify. It's mostly Native American chants and hippy-dippy music you might find on a Pure Mood CD. It takes about 45 minutes before the psilocybin kicks in. It was over an hour before I started to hallucinate. It started with tracing light. The rays shooting out from a nearby lamp grew wide and seemed to reach out at me. Then I began to see abstract shapes. I saw, or imagined that I saw, a giant cuttlefish made of quilts hanging in empty space, and it felt as though the music we were listening to was flowing through me like sunlight through a prism filtered through all the experience I'd had in my life and exiting in the image of that quilted cuttlefish. I was so awestruck that I cried, quietly, beside this man I'd never met before that day. 
Then, since this was a therapy session and not simply a recreational night, he asked me to recall trauma from my past. And so we talked about my troubled childhood and the monsters I met as a kid. It was a profound emotional journey, and while I can't say that I killed my ego, like some people do, the experience changed the way I see the world. It had an immediate and also a long-term effect on my drinking. I no longer needed to binge. If I had one drink, I didn't need to drink ten more. And as weeks and months went by, my desire for liquor subsided like a tide. Simply don't feel the pull anymore. Since that day in D.C., I've recommended psilocybin therapy to friends who served in the military, fellow writers suffering from depression, anyone I know who can't seem to pull themselves out of the habitual patterns of their minds. Simply put, this stuff works wonders. Post-COVID, it sure seems like everyone is suffering. Many of us lost loved ones. Some of us found solace in booze or pills. And just when we were starting to get our footing again, the economy tanked. Inflation eats into our paychecks. We've overpriced our homes. And our salaries stayed the same. Of course people are anxious and depressed. There are natural remedies that can help us feel better, that can offer a little relief. We can choose to provide this relief to people who need it, or we can continue on our path and keep locking up people who are hurting. I hope, in the long run, we do the right thing. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my new weekly podcast, True Crime This Week. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations at woodif.com. Until next time, remember that there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when somebody needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.